guys. Welcome to our fourth episode of Caranel Lifestyle Podcast. Me and Jordan are going to be talking to a wonderful woman who happened to be Jordan's teacher last year. Yes, we are interviewing Dr. Janice Fernheimer for National Bourbon Month. If you did not know, September is National Bourbon Month, which obviously is a big deal in Kentucky. Since it is a huge influence on this culture, we talked to her a little bit about everything, about how in Kentucky really is a basketball, bourbon, and horse country. Oh, and, for sure. And all of the different people that go into the bourbon industry. It's really beautiful, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. It's also really interesting. Pay attention because we found out things that we didn't even know about the bourbon industry here. Absolutely. So here she is, Dr. Janice Fernheimer. Hello, my name is Dr. Janice Fernheimer. I am a professor of writing, rhetoric, and digital studies. I am the Zanker Charitable Foundation Professor and Director of Jewish Studies. I am a James B. Beam Institute uh, for Kentucky Spirits Faculty Fellow here at the University of Kentucky. I had to remember, did I get all my titles? <laughs> wow, that is amazing. Oh my gosh. And I'm so excited to dive into all those titles. Um, I had you as a professor, which is why I'm so excited to continue this conversation and find out more about you outside of Word 112. So can you tell me a little bit why you wanted to become a professor and how you have found your niche in all of this? That's a really great question, Jordan. Um, I think I always loved reading. Um, and I actually, there were like two paths that I was curious about uh, early in my life. One, um, we'll get to, I know something that you were excited about in class, which is my love of reptiles. And so I thought for a short stint that I might become a herpetologist, which is a scientist who specifically studies reptiles and amphibians. Um, when I got to college, I took Bio 105, which at the University of Maryland, where I was an undergrad, was like this giant class of like 500 students and labs. And I loved it and it was great. But the prospect of organic chemistry and some of the other things was a little bit less enticing to me at the time. Um, although I sometimes think, what, what if I had gone that path? What if I would have such a different life as a professor right now? But the other thing that I've always loved is literature and language and words and the power of words and, and how they can inspire others to make the world a better place, whether that's through acts of social justice, um, creative expression. Um, and so I, I've always been interested in that. So I actually ended up pursuing that path and I did um, my undergraduate work at the University of Maryland. And then I went and got a graduate degree, a master's and a PhD at the University of Texas in Austin, um, where I studied American literature and I had a concentration in rhetoric and writing. And that is what set me on my path to becoming a professor. I think I always knew that I loved reading and writing. I loved thinking. I loved the pure joy and excitement that you get from a class conversation that goes really well. And I had this fantasy that that's what being a professor would actually be like all the time. Um, it is some of the time it lives up to that fantasy. And on those days, it's like, yes. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that, I have to say, that I don't think I knew 100% what I was getting into at that time. That's really cool that you went to the University of Maryland because both my parents actually went there. So like, oh, did awesome. Yeah, they did. Oh, they're probably close to my age. <laughs> what is your teaching philosophy and how do you align your passions with it? 
So my teaching philosophy has kind of changed over the years in that uh, one thing that hasn't changed is that I've always been interested in preparing students for what's next and to encourage them to be curious, to be brave, to be creative, to take risks, um, and to be able to teach them how to argue civilly in both academic and non-academic context. And I think especially now in the particular all the moments that we're living through right now with the global pandemic and racial tensions in the United States, it is so important to be able to have difficult conversations with people about things that maybe you don't necessarily agree with. Um, but I believe in the power of those words and the power of those kinds of conversations and training people to be able to have them in a productive way so that you don't alienate one another. Um, at UK, now that I've been a professor, gosh, for more than 20 something years, um, my focus has really been on mentoring um, and teaching students, not just how to write and conduct research and engage with rhetorical concepts or Jewish history, heritage and culture, which is like my expertise, but also helping students and mentees because as you go up through the academic ranks, you're not just working with students, you're working with peer faculty members and helping junior colleagues become tenured, um, there are a lot of different ways that you interact with others, but helping all of those people gain access to the types of experiences and opportunities, not all of them strictly academic, that will help them grow as people. That is so interesting, and it definitely mentored me in how to love and understand the process of writing. Um, but it's so interesting to see all of the different ways that you interact with so many different people. That must be so enriching. Yeah, I love, um, like in my role as director of Jewish studies, I create a significant amount of programming and opportunities for students to minor in Jewish studies to get scholarship money, but also to engage in undergraduate research opportunities. Um, that's a big part of my teaching philosophy is allowing students to have access to the tools to engage in undergraduate research or research of their own you know, whatever they're interested in, but from the very get-go. And I think you experienced a little bit of that, Jordan, in our first-year writing class. Um, and because I often teach first-year writing, uh, it's really important for me to have opportunities for students to engage in, like, real legitimate research where they're generating new knowledge for others to contribute um, from, you know, as early as their first semester. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something that was completely new to me is that when we, you know, signed all these forms to have our study and our oral history project be put actually in a library and be verified as real research. And that was something that was a completely new experience. So thank you. But I mean, now that we've talked a little bit more about how you became a rhetoric teacher, I'd love to know about how bourbon is thrown into the mix of that. <laughs> That's a great question. So, um, so let me map a little bit of kind of, so I, I did my graduate work at the University of Texas at Austin, and then I got my first job as a professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which you might think is a kind of strange place for a rhetoric professor to end up because it's mostly known for its reputation as a very prestigious private engineering school in upstate New York. Um, they actually have one of the oldest technical writing programs in the country, and they had a graduate program um, training folks in technical and professional writing. Um, but for the most part, it was a kind of science-oriented school. So I always joke around that while I was there, I, I taught the engineers how to communicate. Um, and it was very interesting because it was a mostly male place. I think 
then it was maybe 60 40 male students to female students i'm not sure what it is now but at rpi i taught my first and only all-male class and i was a lot younger then so <laughs> it was different um but that's where i got started but what while i was there i was exposed to all of my colleagues in the sciences who have really different ways of thinking about research um you know humanities people tend to do research in a really independent way like if you're an English professor, a Reddit professor, a lot of people, not everyone, end up, you know, you, you find your text, you find your topic, you do your research and you write by yourself. But in the sciences and in engineering and in computer science, it's often a lot more collaborative. There's a team of people, they're working together. They often have a lab and they've got folks working in an apprenticed way all the way down the ladder. So you've got, you know, the professor and then you've got graduate students and then you've got undergraduates. And sometimes there's even high school students who are in the mix. Um, so I learned a lot from my colleagues there about how to create a, a good mentoring scaffold um, to create research projects. And I promise I'm gonna get to the bourbon in a minute. Um, but when I started here at UK, um, I was part of this team of, of professors that was hired to reimagine the first year curriculum. So at that time in 2010, they took kind of like what used to be three classes, a class in communication, which was like mostly speech, speech making, and then a two course sequence in first year writing. Um, and they crunched it into two semesters. Um, so word 110 and 111, if you're not in the, the honors program, and if one semester, if you're in the honors program. But the idea was to combine digital studies, oral studies, writing studies all together. And at the same time, I have expertise in, in things Jewish. My first book was on Black Jewish identity. My second edited collection was on Jewish rhetorics. And so I got tapped to begin to direct the Jewish Studies program in 2012. So I've been directing that since then. And while I was directing Jewish Studies, I began to go to these things, you know, that people go to to like recruit students. So like tabling events, right? You know, you're here for Merit Weekend or whatever it is. And then you go and, you know, this major has a table over here. And that major, this is back in the before times, you know, when like we got together in person. No one had to wear masks and there was no COVID. Um, and so I would stand there with my candy and my sign and you know, people would sort of wander over. And it would be one thing when the students said, oh, Jewish studies, I'm not Jewish, that's not for me. Fine, you're 17, you're 18 years old, no problem, I get that. But when their parents would come over and say, oh, Jewish studies, we're not Jewish, that's not for us. I thought, oh dear, we have a problem. Jewish studies and heritage and culture is a big part of Kentucky history, heritage and culture. And so I began to look into it. What are the three things that everyone loves in Kentucky, right? Horses, bourbon, basketball. And I began to discover Jewish historical roots for all three of those things. Um, and so that started this other project, the Jewish Kentucky Oral History Project to make um, Kentucky's Jewish history, heritage and culture more accessible and more prominent and kind of more visible to a lot of people. Um, and as part of that research, I was like, oh, there were a lot of Jewish people involved in the bourbon industry. This is fascinating. And so those two things started at roughly the same time and they took off in different kinds of ways.
Wow, that is so neat, honestly. And that's such an interesting way to solve a problem is to figure out like the root of what our kind of cultural background is and how you can change that. So is there anything that you are currently researching with that or you're currently researching with Jewish studies? Yeah, so actually that began, so right around that time, 2012, I started directing Jewish studies. And I would say 2013 was when this whole bourbon stuff and the oral, my, the turn towards oral history really took off. It was at that time that for the first time I began introducing oral history into first year classes and also second year classes at the time. And I started a long-term partnership with the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History on the UK campus, which is like an international leader in oral history across the world. And they had started a couple of new things, something called the Oral History Metadata Synchronizer, which is a big mouthful. They call it OMS for short, but it's an open source platform designed to solve a different problem, which is that when you have oral history, um, a lot of times people have you know, hours and hours of oral histories. And if you're a researcher, you're looking for that one part that has to do with what it is that you're interested in. And so the OMS, um, platforms allows you to create basically like a digital table of contents for an oral text um, or video text. Now they have video stuff too. And so that makes it easier for researchers to access the oral histories that you've conducted. So I started working with the Nun Center to have students in my first year writing class create indexes for extant oral histories. So we started with a Jewish collection and an ethnic Lexington collection, which had um, interviews from multicultural folks here in Lexington itself, trying to get people to kind of expand what they thought about counts as kind of you know, authentic Kentucky culture. Um, and then I, uh, in my role as Jew Jewish studies director, I invited a colleague down to come give a presentation that year for a book that he had just released. And that colleague is JT Waldman. He's a New York Times bestselling author, illustrator, best known for his graphic novel um, depiction of the whole book of Esther. And while he was here, he got Hanukkah tickets to go on the bourbon trail. And he went on the bourbon trail and he went to the Heaven Hill Visitor Center. And he's like, Shapiro brothers, my Judar is going off. This sounds Jewy. And um, he asked the, 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 the guide, you know, tour guide, sorry, I was looking for the word you know, tell me more about the Shapiro brothers, because there wasn't a whole lot explicitly about their Jewish heritage on the actual walls of the, the tour, but you saw Shapiro here, and they're immigrants from Eastern Europe, and, you know, it's all kind of ticking the box. Yeah, you're right, they are. And so then he gets to the tasting room, and if you look up in the architecture of the tasting room at Heaven Hill is a big, actually, I think it's two Jewish stars if memory serves, but in the actual architecture, very beautiful. But only if you look up. It's not like someone tells you to look up while you're on the team. He said, this is pretty interesting. So I'm like, all right, all right, I got to go check this out. So we went and, and, and I started asking questions. And then we, we were on to it. We're like, hey, there's actually a lot of Jewish people involved in the bourbon industry. Is this something or is this something we're making up? And it turns out there's actually a pretty substantive history there. And so that launched two complementary projects. So one is the Kentucky Jewish Oral History Project that I mentioned before. And this other project that JT and I have been working on for darn near a decade now is a project that we call America's Chosen Spirit. And this is a, a transmedia project. We, we think big. At that time, we didn't have any kids between the two of us. 
And um, we wanted to do a, a huge graphic narrative project. It's a historical fiction. Each you know, season has 10 episodes or 10 chapters, right? So this is like an epic graphic narrative project that we wanted to produce on the, on the web first. And then we wanted a podcast series that was going to track the history, this alternative history that you can listen to in between driving between the distilleries. And then a sip and study series where we were gonna get people to taste different kinds of bourbons from different ethnic cultural backgrounds and teach them the history while they're you know, pleasing their palate. And so that all got started then and, and that launched us on a big track and we were trying to get funding for the research. We got funding and we've been working on it, doing research ever since. And we've got about half of the first season drafted and drawn, um, but life happens. I had a baby, they had a baby, we have day jobs, you know, the pandemic happened, it made it tough to get into the archives, um, but we're working on it, and the idea is to have a, a big historical fiction graphic novel that tracks three generations of a Jewish family that settled in Kentucky that's based on the historical research that we've done. And we tie in all kinds of things with civil war history and the history of African-Americans and black contributions to the industry. And then there are some other immigrants who contributed pretty significantly to the industry, Japanese immigrants, LGBTQ individuals. So we like to talk about it as a project that showcases blacks, Jews, women, and other others contributions to the industry. Um, so that's the big project right now. Um, Growing out of that project, as we tried to track like the smoking gun of archival documents linking women to this, you know, involvement, we realized that it's pretty hard to track. Like a lot of feminist history, you see the women there in the traces or in what isn't actually written about. Um, same for African-American contributions. Like we know that people were contributing. In fact, we know that people who were enslaved were so hired out was like a term um, as distillers as early as like the 1700s, but you can see it there. And, and so that's, that's kind of led me to a, another branch of the project, which is the Women in Bourbon Oral History Project that I just launched last spring, believe it or not, with my bourbon oral history students. And so we've got about 22 oral histories in that project right now. And the idea is to keep it going until we've got at least 150 do you think if your colleague hadn't have seen like the Jewish stars or like actually questioned about like the Jewish community's contribution to the bourbon industry that like you would have otherwise known or like anybody would have known these contributions? Like, do you think it was being kind of hidden? Well, I think that's a really good question about because it was present. I mean, it's not like the stars weren't there. They're smack there in the middle of it. And in fact, recently I've gone back to the just this summer in that hot second where it was sort of OK to be out and about. Um, I went back because they redid the, um, the tour at Heaven Hill. And it, there's a lot more about that immigrant history. Um, but I think you're right that people are careful about the way that they talk about it and call attention to it. Later that year, there were a couple of other books that came out that talked a lot more about it. So one is this really amazing book called Jews and Booze 
by Marnie Davis. She's a historian and did a whole track about the historical relationship of Jews and the alcohol industry. And there's a couple of other articles that came to light, I think 2014, 2015, Reed Mittenbuehler, who wrote a wonderful book on the history of bourbon called Bourbon Empire, also published a piece in the Atlantic Monthly, I believe. And it had some catchy title about Jews in the bourbon industry. So I think that, you know, we were kind of catching on because we were here and it was Kentucky and, you know, it's natural to think, well, were we involved, right? Um, and the idea, of course, is for it to have a much broader audience because I, I think there's still a significant number of the population who listens, really? The Jews were involved? Could you talk a little bit about oral history and like why it's beneficial to the storytelling of the bourbon industry here? So oral history um, is is a it's a research method, right, um, for interviewing and preserving stories. Um, a lot of times, uh, certain traditions are often not pre preserved in the written record. Um, it kind of emerged in the oh gosh, I should have looked this up. Um, I want to say the late '60s, early '70s, but I should check. You all should fact check me on that. Um, but as a kind of popular movement, um, when, you know, history generally has been told, right, you, deliberate use of the passive voice from the perspective of leaders, from the perspective of people in power, from the perspective of often men, often white men, and oral history really emerged as a way to diversify the kinds of voices and stories that we get to understand and that we get to count as history. And those voices can include everyday people and everyday people's experiences in connection to larger national events or just in connection to what's happening during their day. Um, and so it becomes a really powerful mechanism for telling what some people would call alternate history, what I would call maybe marginal history or the history that we don't yet know, often of women, marginalized populations, minorities, folks with oral traditions as opposed to a more written context. And so that becomes really powerful. Um, and Jordan can probably talk to you about the power of actually listening to the voice. Um, there's a kind of intimacy there um, in hearing something through someone's voice as opposed to reading it through the text. And so I think there's some really um, important rhetorical work that we can accomplish uh, by conducting and listening to oral histories and making them more accessible to a broader audience. And the Louis B. Nunn Center here at UK is a leader in that um, through the development of the kind of open source platforms that they're doing and the innovative pedagogical uh, partnerships that they have with faculty like me, but also other faculty across campus. Tell me about some of the biggest impacts you've seen presenting this material and how you think they will change the bourbon industry moving forward. So we had a really great experience this summer as part of my work as a James B. Beam faculty fellow. Um, and as part of the work of the Women uh, in Bourbon Oral History Project, I had a team of undergraduates working with me this summer. So part of the work that they were doing was creating the indexes for those oral histories that we conducted in class in the spring uh, to make sure that they were accessible and they can be put online. You know, the other part of it was trying to figure out a social media campaign to promote the collection. And I think there were two opportunities that I had. There's a lot of back and forth between the research happening at UK and industry itself. So I had the opportunity to present some of my research for the America's Chosen Spirit Project to a bunch of uh, James B. Bean interns 
um, this summer through their program. And then the students got a chance to present their work to uh, BEAM executives. So it was this really amazing moment of listening to executives asking, you know, how do we get more women? How do we get more people of color into the industry? How do we make this a more open, diverse, inclusive, equitable situation? And having students be in the position of authority, having listened to these, of course, amazing women who have already made it and were interviewed for, you know, some, for the collection itself, but talking about their experiences. And so that was a really awesome dynamic. And so I think, I think once you start to have the stories, then you can tell different stories, right? That's the power of those oral histories is in the aggregate, they begin to tell some really interesting narratives and we can learn a lot from them. Wow. I really think like I could ask you about seven more questions about this. I mean, it's just so fascinating, all of the different intricate levels of this culture that I had no idea. I mean, both of us are out-of-state students, so we kind of dove into this Kentucky culture. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing how you are both, um, you know, honoring it and representing it, but also like moving it forward and changing the culture and, you know, pushing us into this new direction. And it's beautiful. So thank you so, so much. Please tell our listeners where everybody can find out more about you, find out more about your campaign. Oh, great. Uh, I have a <laughs> professional website, I think that needs to be woefully updated. I think uh, UK, I've got a, on the College of Arts and Sciences, I've got a professional site there. I think I have a site at the James B.B. Institute and there are links to the American Chosa Spirit Project there. Um, there are links to both the Women in Bourbon Oral History Project and the Jewish Kentucky Oral History Project. And those can be found through the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History at the University of Kentucky. Um, and I often teach classes in the Certificate for Distillation, Wine, and Brewing. So if you're interested in learning or becoming part of the industry, uh, I teach a, a lower level class called Word 225, Writing Bourbon, Rectifying the Record, the Bourbon Industry, Kentucky Bourbon Industry in Context, where students can learn, humanities students or anyone really can learn about how to enter the bourbon industry from the writing side, like how to write uh, for those kind of lifestyle publications that your audience might be interested in. And then I also teach the upper division uh, bourbon oral history class where students actually get to conduct interviews with bourbon women and have those uh, interviews become part of the, the women in bourbon project. So, Wow, what an amazing way to celebrate National Bourbon Month. I loved listening to her and hearing all that she has to say. Please check her out for more information and all of the studies that she's currently doing. But stay tuned for our next episode where Jordan will be doing her first solo podcast. And also, even though September is National Bourbon Month, it is also National Hispanic Heritage Month. The 21st, there's Undocuments, which is a solo show by Jesus Valles. He's putting it on in the arts college that will be at the Singletary Center. And then my sorority is participating in an event called Tapas and Topics, where we're going to be talking about the Latinx American diaspora and how there's a lot of different cultures in the Latin heritage alone. And that will be September 28th in the MLK Center and also on the social staircase in the student center. There's also other events going on, like September 23rd. There's yoga on Kroger Field. I really want to attend that, not going to lie. On the 29th, there's throwback sing-along. And on the 30th, there is sweet trivia. So please go to the, some of those events. They are sound so, so amazing. You will definitely see both of us at some of them. Thank you again for joining us and have an amazing rest of your week.
Thank you.